0: I'm excited to be here this morning to open up the Word of God with you again. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Jake sort of gave me the opportunity to preach on a text that I'd like to preach on, and I really if you get to know me, I really love the book of Isaiah. So I'm excited to go through this with you, Isaiah chapter 40. As you're turning there, I've got to be honest with you, I feel a little bit of a sense of weight and responsibility with this text this morning because the Lord makes it very, very clear what He intends to do uh, for his people through this text this morning. And uh, and really the intention is that he wants to comfort you. You need to hear that, understand that up front. The, the goal of this text this morning is that you would be comforted, that you'd be encouraged, that you'd be exhorted, that your soul would sort of be counseled by the Lord this morning to, to have a new perspective, to have a new sight, a new vision of him in such a way that it would comfort you this morning. That's the intention the Lord makes very clear that he intends to accomplish in our text today. And so It's my prayer and my hope that as we open the Word of God and the Holy Spirit does the things that only He can do, that we would have a very real sense of that happening in our hearts and in our lives today. So with that sort of expectation, let's just read this first verse here for a minute. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, you'll see what I mean. The Lord says in Isaiah 41, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Right? You can't miss it there. The Lord says right off the bat to Isaiah, go and speak to my people, and I want you to comfort them. And he doesn't just say it once. He says it twice, like it's a command, a double command. Comfort my people. I intend for them to be comforted today. And it's not just for everybody, right? You pay attention to that verse. It's for a specific people. Those who God says are my people, and those are the people who say this is our God, right? Comfort my people, says your God. And I think it's important to realize that's more than... That's important to connect here. That, that verse is not trying to teach that this is just the specific people this comfort is for. You need to understand that this is the foundational idea of why we need to be comforted. See, I don't know how much you guys know about the book of Isaiah, but chapter 40 is sort of this dividing line in the book, and looking forward from chapter 40 is all about this message of comfort. The whole thing is intended to point to and look towards this comfort that we can ultimately find in Jesus Christ. It's the coming, conquering king that we're going to see in the end of Isaiah, if you keep reading. There's the suffering servant that you're going to see, and how he's going to come and redeem his people and save his people. They can't do anything for themselves. He is going to come and establish all of that. The supply, what he's, everything that God has, he's going to supply to us. And it's just an incredibly um, intentional passage to comfort the people of God and all that God will supply them with. But the foundation of that, the foundational idea before you can sort of receive any of that comfort is this verse 1 here, is the idea that you understand that you are the people of God. The people of God by faith who hope in the Lord. This is not just for anybody. It's for us who are the people of God. And why it becomes so profound for us as we hope in the Lord, as we understand through Jesus Christ... Isaiah's day, it would have been by faith in God, but now we see even more fully because we know Christ has come. It's through Jesus Christ and our hope in him we're identified as the people of God. Why this is so important is because when we begin to realize who God is, when we begin to understand how big and how majestic and glorious and we have a vision of God and an understanding of God that's just full of all of who God is. We can behold him and see him in his glory and his might and his creating power. And then we think of us. We think that that great conquering, creating God looks down on the earth, looks down, you know, come out of the telescope, so to speak, down out of, looking at the earth, looking at Canada, looking at St. Thomas, looking at this little building, looking at you sitting in your seat. That king of creation is saying this morning, I'm speaking to you and I want to come for you. It becomes very powerful when you understand it that way, right? It becomes quite significant. This is what the Lord intends to do for His people. It's for us as a congregation, but also for us as individuals. And so, I have a question for you: Are you are you finding comfort even already this morning, and just this idea that this great sovereign God intends to comfort you? Or just check your heart for a moment. Are you, if you're honest, maybe still wrestling with the reality that you chase a lot of other things in life for comfort? Instead of chasing after God, instead of pursuing who God is and more of Him, we pursue other things and we chase after temporal things. And I don't need to list them all quite yet, we'll get into more of that later, but you know what they are in your own life. And I just want to maybe challenge you this morning to, to acknowledge what those things are that you chase after for comfort in this world, for peace, for security in this world, and just say for the next 40 minutes, we're going to put all those things to the side because we really all know none of those things work. Right? None of those things work. So mentally, in your heart, and your mind, put those things to the sides. So I'm not hoping in any of those things, at least for the next 40 minutes. I'm focused on God. And then with me this morning, I'd ask that we would all together ask the Lord to do what he intends to do this morning and say, Lord, please demonstrate that you are the one who's comforting me. Make that a prayer in your heart as we approach the word this morning. Ask the Lord to comfort you this morning. And then just a little bit of verse 2 here before we get into our text starting at verse 12. Uh, verse 2 says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And the idea there is the Lord's speaking to Isaiah and he's saying to Isaiah, speak in such a way so that the people are convicted. So they're, so they're feeling and they're understanding exactly the comfort that I intend. Speak to them in such a way as to win their hearts over to the comfort that I intend. Convince them of it so that it would produce confidence and boldness in them. That's what he's intending to say there at the beginning of verse 2. And that's what the Lord wants to do with us. He wants to comfort us this morning. He is the comforter. Just a couple verses to, to reinforce this. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 calls him the God of all comfort. Right? Isaiah 51, verse 12, the Lord says, "I I am he who comforts you. And this is what we need. We need the Lord to be the one who's comforting us, who's showing us that. And the best way that we can possibly have that happen, I hope you hear this, the best thing, the best counsel you can have for your soul, where the Lord would speak to you and comfort your soul and encourage you, the best thing you can have is, are are you ready for this? You need to behold your God. You need to see more of God. You may think you need answers to questions, but what you need more than anything else is to see more of God. That's why the title of today's message is Behold Your God. Look at this in verse 9. The Lord knows we need this. Look at Isaiah 40 verse 9 for a minute. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Like, Go up on the mountain and shout it. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, say what? Say, behold your God. This is what we need to see. More than anything else, we need to behold our God this morning. I'm telling you, this is the best sort of form of counsel we can get. We need this more than anything else. We need to understand there's a direct correlation between how much we see God and how we see God and the decisions in our everyday life and the struggles in our everyday life. There's a direct correlation between how we react to the world we're living in and how we see God. And the best thing we can be doing is pursuing more of a vision of God, more of an understanding of God, see more of Him. And so our hope is that's what we'd have here this morning. And so I'll just ask sort of, that was sort of our introduction, and now as we enter into the text where the Lord sort of explains and exposes Himself to us, starting in verse 12, I'd ask maybe that we just pray together first and ask that we would see the Lord together. So bow your heads and pray with me. Let's humble our hearts before our Creator. God and Father king of heaven, king of glory, the one who's created this earth. Lord, you are the one who sits on the throne. You are the king of kings. Lord, I pray that you would give us a glimpse of you today. Open our eyes just a little bit more. Open our ears just a little bit more that we would see you more. That you would do what you say you intend to do from the text here this morning, from your word here this morning. Lord, we believe your word is sure. Your word is true. You are faithful. You are good. You're the good shepherd over your people, and you want to counsel us and And comfort us, Lord, I pray that we would experience that this morning and that our hearts would be eager for it, that our hearts would be longing for it. And as we look to be comforted by you, we would find that there is no better place than to just see more of you. This would be the delight of our hearts, Lord. Help us to enjoy the sweetness of knowing more of you, that it would be more delightful than anything else. Lord, I pray that you'd move in your word and your spirit would work and we would know that you are comforting our souls this morning. Bear that fruit in our hearts, the things that only you can do, Lord, we ask that you would do them. We ask this to the glory of your great name, and we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So now we turn to chapter, uh, verse 12. Look down the page a little bit. We don't have time to go through the whole chapter, so I want to skip down to verse 12. And our sort of first point this morning is that we need to see his power and his wisdom. Verses 12 to 14. So we'll read through this part of the text here together. Listen to this. The Lord is teaching us. He's exposing to us. Here's how we're going to be comforted. I'm going to show you who I am. Look at my power and my wisdom. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands? Who has marked off the heavens with a span And enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the scales in the mountains, sorry, weighed the mountains in a scale, and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? The Lord's doing this sort of in the form of a question that we would answer the question with the same answer all the time. Like, who's formed the waters? Who's poured out the waters on the earth in the hollow of his hand? And we say, nobody but God. Every time, that's sort of the answer. Only God. He's the one who's done this. There's no one like God. And so I just want to think those thoughts through for a minute to help emphasize how big the Lord is trying trying to communicate that he is to us. His, His awesome power here is in verse 12, right? Look at that first line there. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? We read that and we sort of go over it quick, but just let your mind sort of dwell on it for a minute. Maybe help me here with an illustration. Hold out your hand in front of you, right? And you look at your hand and your palm of your hand there, there's that little sort of hollow in your hand, right? We've all got it. Different size hands, maybe a little different, but our great and mighty God, it's saying here is a visual picture. All the waters that cover the earth fit into the palm of his hand. Right, he pours as he's creating, and his creating power—he's creating the earth. He literally pours out the little bit of the water that's in his hand, and it covers the oceans and the seas. You just need to see how big our God is, how powerful our God is. Right? It's the same in the next sort of idea. He marks off the heavens, the sky, with the span of his hand. Right? Sort of like this kind of measurement here. He marks off the heavens with the span of his hand. This is how big and powerful our God is. Right? In his creating of the earth that we that we dwell on. He encloses the dust of the earth in a measure and weighs the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance, right? It's like all the mountains, all the mountains that are on the entire earth, he's sort of planned them out and laid them out. He's weighed them out, and he's put them exactly where he intends to put them. And the hills, too, and the dust is like in a measure. Like It's like he's got, you know, just like his hands are big, he's got bigger measuring cups than us. He's got a little measuring cup, so to speak. Not quite, but the idea is that you would see how big our God and God is in creating this world, how powerful He is so much greater than us. It's intended to sort of give this overwhelming picture of the size and the strength and the power of God. And then on top of the power of God, you have the wisdom of God. Verse 13 and 14. Who's measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? And the idea here is as God created the world, as God created Everything that exists. Who sort of gave him counsel? Who educated him how to do it right? You know, you think about ideas here. Look at verse 14. Who, gave, who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and knowledge and the way of understanding? You know, there's a lot of ideas out there that people, philosophers will think. You know, there's things in the world that are sort of intangible, like ideas, like goodness and justice and righteousness and, and knowledge and understanding. And they're sort of out there as... As things that were always before, and we sort of learn them as we come along as humans, and people tend to think God's the same way. They were always out there sort of in the universe, so to speak, and then God sort of came along one day, and he learned those things, and then he started to create the world from them, but that's not the truth. The truth is God is the ultimate source. God is the one who always was, always is, and always will be. He's the first, the a priori, the thing before anything else that always was. And knowledge and wisdom and goodness and peace and love, they, he's the source of them. They come from him. That's what Isaiah is trying to teach here, right? In his power, he creates the earth with the simplicity of the water of the earth and the palm of his hand and and things like goodness and understanding and justice. They come from him. He's the source of them. This is who our God is. We need to see this. I think we need to be sort of overwhelmed with this idea. He's the source of creation, he's the source of wisdom, justice, knowledge. Proverbs 3, verse 19 says, By the Lord, wisdom, the Lord by wisdom has founded the earth. By understanding, he's established the heavens. It's him. He's the the original source of all of these things. He is God. There is no one like him. If you want to continue to encourage your soul with thoughts of how big God is, I'd encourage you maybe with just a little bit of homework here. Um, The Lord does this in another place in Scripture, Job chapter 38 and 39. I know you guys know the story of Job well enough. He's sort of struggling with a pretty tough spot in his life. Questioning God, wondering what's going on a little bit. And the Lord answers him in chapter 38 and 39. And how does God answer him? He's not giving him the answers of why. What God does to counsel Job is show Job who he is. right? Just like we need to be comforted and counseled this morning, he, he goes and he lays out his creating power, his awesome power through those chapters. And so I just encourage you as a little bit of extra reading homework, Job 38 and 39, just to continue this sort of theme Great for us to dwell on how great our God is. We need this more than we realize. Check out this verse, Romans eleven thirty four. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, and unfathomable His ways. For who is known in the mind of the Lord, or who becomes His counselor, or who is first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? The answer is nobody, because from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Right? You see, again, the same idea here. He is the original source of all of these things. Wisdom and power are from him. It's important for us to see and understand this. And then again, maybe we just go back to the application of verse 1. I hope you guys are already seeing how big our God is just in this first point. You see how big and how strong and how wise he is. And then don't forget, that great king intends to reach down into this building and comfort you in your seat this morning. That's incredibly good news. The next point is to see that we would see his greatness and that we'd know that nobody, nobody in all of humanity compares to God. And the idea here is to remind us and comfort us by reminding us of how great he is in comparison to us. So listen to this text. It might sound a little offensive at first, but bear with me here. Listen to this. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, they're accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. It sort of seems like, almost like, whoa, he intended to comfort me. This doesn't feel very good, right? But understand what the Lord's doing. We need to understand how big he is in comparison to him how big he is in comparison to us. And, and I think we have this problem where we start to think too much of ourselves in our society and our world, right? We think much of certain men in our world or certain people who have power and influence. We look at them and we think they're rather significant and rather important. And the Lord says, no, forget talking about one man. Let's just combine, let's, let's just combine all of you all together. Like, let's all the nations, all the nations, he says, bloop, like a drop in the bucket compared to him. Do you see the greatness of God in comparison? Like, we are nothing in comparison. Like, you're not even like, like, you're dust on the scales. If you go back to the image of the Lord makes the mountains and he uses scales to place the mountains in place, that same scale, he puts all the nations on that scale and they don't even move the needle. Right? Do you see that that this is not to belittle man. Please hear this. This is not to belittle man so much that it devalues humanity. We believe the Bible teaches we're made in the image of God. We're image bearers. This is not to insult what God has created. It's to understand by comparison us before our holy God. There is such a great contrast. Such a great contrast. And I think it's important for us to see this because we live in a world where this idea is extremely offensive and I think we are taught to think the same as the world in this regard and so it begins to be a little offensive to us. It's insulting, right? Doesn't the world teach us? You are master of your own domain. Take the world by the horns. The world is all about you. You know, you just, like, you are a powerful individual, right? Go and conquer the world. Like, you are significant. You deserve more. You deserve more. You deserve more, right? Is the world not telling us this all the time? You're something special. It's, we're lifting ourselves up in pride and arrogance all the time in this world. And that creeps into our hearts as the church, we start thinking we've got sort of rights and deserve certain things, and this is what we demand. And you, st- you can sort of tell by our prayer life, can't we? If we're honest. Our prayer life looks a lot like we come to God and we start asking Him for things. Like that's where, we, bam, God, here's what I expect, here's what I want, here's what I need. And that's where our focus is because it's about me and I'm pretty important. I'm telling you, the problem is simply we think too highly of ourselves. So many of the problems today that we wrestle with, that we here in this room wrestle with, are because we have this disproportionate perspective of God in our lives, of God and us in our lives. We, here's what it is. We think too lit. We bring God from way up there. We bring him down to here and us way down here. Like there should be this great chasm between us, but we bring him down and we bring ourselves up. And so we're not so arrogant as to say, you know, we're higher than God, but maybe we're here and God's here, so to speak, right? It's the wrong perspective of God, and it doesn't do any good for us. He's so far beyond us. We think this way. You can tell we think this way because as Christians, we fool ourselves into thinking. I know we don't say it, but we fool ourselves into thinking. I'm going to do some impressive things with my life. Some good things, good ministry things, and God's going to be impressed with me. I've got some some you know some powerful ministry ideas. I'm connected to certain things. I'm giving money to certain things, and whatever it is, and we start thinking like, yeah, God's going to be impressed by our works and we know better but we tend to think about this transactional relationship anyways and think God's going to be impressed and and the Lord's trying to help us understand stop thinking that way look at verse 16 he's trying to remind us Here he talks about a sacrifice that someone might bring to him, and he's saying Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. Lebanon is the great mountain range in Palestine, like tons of trees, known for its epic forest. All the trees in Lebanon would not be enough for the fire that would be worthy to come to me. And all the animals in that forest on top of the fire as a sacrifice would not be enough. The point is you're not going to impress him. We're not going to impress him by work. All the nations are as nothing before him, right? We need to remember this. We need to have this perspective where God is so much bigger than us. It's sort of a, an insulting thought if you think about it for a minute, right? All the nations, all the nations are less than nothing, or nothing before him, but they are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. And You may think, well, I came to church today to be comforted to hear that I am less than nothing. That's great. But I'm telling you, it should be comforting for your soul because the idea here is not to insult you. It's to see that compared to God, that's how small you are. We need to be reminded of how great our God is, how big and mighty and powerful and sovereign, and His creating power and His holiness and His righteousness like everything you can think of, of how great or awesome God is. And in comparison to that, we should have the same response I'm so low, I'm so humbled. I'm telling you, this is good for us to understand. It's so good for our hearts. We need this. Think about it. Think about how it puts the... When you can remember that, when you can see God in that way for a minute, how good is it for your perspective on the things you're dealing with this week? The things that you're worried about. Sickness. Life falling apart, money concerns, relationships that are strained. Like, think about all those day to day things or those things you work through through the week and you're just wrestling with and they're, they're consuming your time and you're worried about them. And then all of a sudden you come to church this morning, you're just reminded for a moment, for a glimpse, how big our God is. Does it not put those things in perspective? They're not as big of an issue, first off. And I don't say it to be insulting. I just think from God's perspective, He's not worried about any of them and He's called you one of His kids. You're one of His. Because you're one of His, you should feel so secure. This sovereign, all-powerful God is saying, you are mine. I intend to come for you. I'm shepherding you. I'm guiding you. Rest in that. Find comfort in that. And then on the other side, maybe not worried about it, but some of us might wrestle with anger or bitterness this week. I know how that works. You get angry or bitter about something, it just starts to chew you up inside, and it becomes the only thing you think about all week long. And anybody wants to talk to you, you're going to snap about it because it's just consuming your thoughts. It's such a big deal in your mind. And then you come to church this morning, and you get reminded how little and how small that is compared to the great and mighty and awesome God. Isn't that not counsel for your soul? Isn't that what you need? To be reminded of how big and powerful and amazing and loving our God is. We need this. And I just give you maybe another application here of how you can continue to remind yourself of this. One good practice, one good discipline you can do to continue to draw your mind to this, because it's good for all of us to not just hear it one morning, but to hear it over and over again, is in your prayer life. I mentioned it earlier we come to God in our prayer life cuz we think we're pretty important we just sort of give our requests to God and go back to our business but let me encourage you a great way to keep God and the, the the magnitude of God front and center in your in your life is to praise him in your prayer life. Praise him in your prayer life. Start your prayers off and this is simple lots of people as they teach you about prayer will teach you this idea but just spend time praising God. Praise him like start the prayer off not by asking your your you know your petitions to the Lord. Not that those are wrong, but start your prayer off by praising Him, lifting His name high, declaring how great He is, declaring His creating power, His saving power, His love for you in sending His Son. Just praise Him and praise Him with whatever comes to mind, and let your kids hear it. Let your kids hear it so they don't fall prey to the same thing we sort of do, right? That they learn to get used to this big and awesome and incredibly glorious God, It's so good for us to have this front and center in our minds. I think we need this way more than we realize, that God would be put back in his place way up on his throne in our hearts and minds, and we'd be humbled where we ought to be, and we live from that perspective. It's good for us. The third point is that we need to see his divinity, that he truly is the only God. This is what we need to see here, verse 18 to 20. The issue on the table here is not humanity, but idolatry. The things that we... Bow down before his idols. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? Same question again. Who is like God, right? An idol? A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold, and he casts for it silver chains. He who's too poor or too impoverished for a gold offering chooses wood and will, that will not rot, and he, casts, he seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Isaiah is very good at sort of making fun of the idols that people worship. If you read the book of Isaiah, it's funny. I joke about his trash-talking game often. He's really good. I think it's the Lord's intention to do it this way, but almost sarcastically to say, do you see how silly it For is? I'm God, God is saying, and I have created you as creatures in my own image, and then you decide to use the skills that I've given you and the resources that I've given you to make something yourself that can't move, and you put it on yourself, and you bow down in front of it as if that's God. Does that make any sense? No, and we sort of see it as foolish and silly, and we think, man, that's crazy. Why would people bow down to idols like that? And that's the point. It's supposed to seem foolish and silly. Psalm 96, verse 4 and 5 says this, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. This is the difference. He's the one who made the heavens, and we choose to bow down. They choose to bow down before these silly idols. But if we're going to be honest and apply this, we have to ask the question, then what are the idols in our day? Maybe we don't want to talk about that, right? But we need to a little bit here, because that's the same point. What are the idols in our day? Think about what it is that consumes your heart and your affections Throughout the week, again, the things that you're spending time chasing after. Possessions, material things, right? Power, the vanity of beauty, the pride, just simply the pride of winning, of striving to be the best or one of the best so you feel better about yourself. Safety, comfort, and security. We're chasing after safety and security in our day like crazy. I'm wanting people to think much of you. Success. Success making an impact in the world. I mean, you could, like, you could write a self-help book and talk about how good it is in our day and age to chase after those things because it's seen as good in our day to go after those things. I'm telling you, we make those things idols in our lives. We do. And we need to see that they're idols. The word idol means not God's. They're not gods, but we bow, bow down before them anyways. And if we're honest, I was thinking of how to make this visual picture stick. What you ought to do if you're somebody who struggles with possessions in your life and that you can't help but keep chasing after the next new thing and the next biggest thing and wanting to make your house better, wanting the next car, wanting the new iPhone that's coming out, whatever it might be, I'm telling you, if you're honest about your house and those possessions being as consuming as they are, maybe you should get out in front of your neighbors, get on the lawn and bow down in front of it. And we chuckle. It seems a little silly. I'd be foolish. Well, just as foolish as these guys bowing down before a wooden idol, right? That's the point. It's all foolish. Whatever it is, your job, you go to work, you'll bow down in your office beforehand to make sure everybody understands this is what I worship. Like, we get consumed with that stuff, and we got to stop it. It's foolish. It's silly. We need to see him as the only God. There's no one like him. He's so far above all of these things that they're not worth chasing after, We need to check our affections and make them long after the Lord, much more than we long after those things. Next thing is we need to see him as the king of kings. And here this is verse 21 to 24. We have to know that he is the true ruler of humanity. Let's read this passage uh, together, starting verse 21. Do you not know... Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He, it is God, who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, he, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes, of the, the princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely are they sown, scarcely have, has their stem taken root in the earth when He blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. The issue on the table in this one is the kings and rulers in this earth that we make way too much of a deal out of we, and you just first let 's talk context in isaiah 's day i don 't know if you guys are aware of the context, but isaiah 's writing in a Jerusalem that is about to be destroyed, right You guys know of how the Babylonian Empire came and they conquered Jerusalem took them out of their homes, brought them as slaves into a new country. They destroyed their temple, right? You think the book of Daniel, how Daniel's in under King Nebuchadnezzar, right? That's Babylon. They, they've all sort of been dragged out of their homes, living in this new world as slaves, and sort of it's a difficult world to live in. The book of Isaiah is right in that time frame. And so there's lots of questions in their hearts going around about how do we how do we make sense of the leaders in this world? How do we make sense of the rulers in this world and how, what they seem to be doing and the things that they're chasing after and where they're bringing our our society. What, how do we make sense of it? What's going on with all of this? And there's fear, and there's worrying, and I'm sure the dinner table and the friends around the local Tim Hortons in Babylon are questioning and asking, what are we going to do? What do we make sense of this, right? doesn't sound that different from our day, does it? Especially like quite relevant for the day we're living. And people, I mean, you can't, I'm not on Facebook or, or Instagram anymore, but you, I hear that you can't Scroll down your page without seeing people talk about this kind of stuff in our day and age. What's going on in our world? How do we make sense of it? What if? What if this happens? What if this happens? People are so consumed about the big world leading sort of men and women in our world, whether it's corporate, whether it's governments, whatever it might be. And there's concern and questions. What's going to happen? And there's fear. There's a lot of fear in our world right now because of leading men and women in our world. And what's going to happen next? Can I just remind you with this word again? Do you not know? Like, this is what we should be saying as Christians. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth that it is He, it is our God, who sits above the circle of the earth and the inhabitants on this world are like grasshoppers? Right? Look at verse 23. He's the one who brings the princes to nothing, he makes the rulers of the earth emptiness. 24, scarcely are they planted, scarcely are they sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. In other words, they're like little sapling trees planted in the ground. They're here for a moment and they're gone from God's perspective. He's in complete control of it. They are not near as big (laughs) as they think they are. But our God sits above the circle of the earth and he looks on all of it and he knows exactly what's going on. He's completely in control The warning should be that we need to be careful not to think too highly of the powers in our day and forget that our God is sovereign over them. I am not saying we do not submit to them, but we cannot forget who our God is as the king of kings. We cannot forget that. I think that's a major um, point of Daniel chapter 4, another great chapter to read if you do extra, extra reading and homework. Daniel chapter 4 says this, I think, four or five times throughout chapter 4 and 5. The Lord Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, and he gives them to whom he chooses. If we believe that, we should be full of confidence in this world where everyone else is feeling chaos. How good should it feel for us to know this great in God that we're beholding this morning, to know he is over it all and in control of all. If we can believe that by faith, what confidence, what opportunity it is for us to share our hope and our confidence in the midst of a world that's full of sort of terror right now. We hope in the King of kings and Lord of lords who's so much above all of that. And the implication is not only can he remove them here, like verse 23 says, but also he puts them in place, like we said in Daniel. He's sovereign over the kingdoms of men, and he gives them to whom he chooses. I always smirk at that verse in 417 of Daniel because the Lord's speaking to King Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of the sort of empire that was conquering the world at that time. And the Lord speaks to King Nebuchadnezzar, and he says that to remind that great king, I'm the one who's sovereign over the kingdoms of men. I give them to whom I choose. And then a little bit later down, he says, and he sets over at the lowliest of men. Not quite to insult Nebuchadnezzar, but to remind him not to think so much of himself. That we'd all remember and understand that our God is the King of Kings, that we'd keep that view of Him in mind. Quite relevant for us in our day. The next point we see as we continue to look at our God and how much greater He is than everything else is take a look at the cosmos, see His control of the cosmos. And on this one, I just, you know, I encourage you to lift up your eyes and see your God. We need to lift up our eyes and see our God, not just here in creating this earth, but in the whole of the universe. Look at these verses, 25 and 26. To whom then will you compare me? Again, the question, there's nobody compared to God. That I should be like him, says the Holy One. He's the Holy One, the Holy, Holy, Holy God, so perfect, so righteous, the ultimate source of all things. You think about, he's sort of asking that question again, knowing he's gone through this list. He's the one who, if you go back to the beginning, he measured the waters and his power, and he made the earth, and in his wisdom, he's the source of wisdom and knowledge and justice. You go to verse 15. The nations are nothing, all of the nations are nothing compared to him. The idols that we worship are nothing compared to him. The kings of the earth are so small and insignificant compared to him. He is the king over all these things. So to whom then would you compare me? And the answer is nobody's like our holy God. He is so good and so wise and so strong and so powerful and full of glory and majesty. And so then he says, now lift up your eyes and see as if to continue to explain how great he is. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He's literally saying, lift up your eyes and look at the stars. That's what's in view here. Look at the stars. I don't know if you guys like to do this. I'm a little bit of a camping family. We do this with our kids once in a while anyways. And you've got to get out of the city, out of the bright lights. You go and you lie on the grass in the evening as the sun's setting. or right? You lie down with your backs on the grass and just look up at the stars. And as the, the, the dusk settles and, and, and the night starts to come in, what happens? You start the well, there's one, there's one, there's one. And the stars start to come to light sort of thing, right? One after the other, and they, they come forth sort of out, of out of the darkness. Listen to how the Lord describes that. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them by name. That's the Lord. That's like a, it's like a show he's putting on for us. If you get a chance to do that, he's calling their hosts out of the darkness by number. He's calling them by name. By the greatness of his might and because of his strong power, not one is missing. Just It should blow our minds to see the greatness of God in that again. right? You sit there and you dwell on and think about the Lord of the cosmos, the Lord of the heavens, every single star, planet. I am not an astrologer by any means. I'm not <laughs> very good at that stuff. But man, it just takes my breath away when I see the majesty of it. And that is teaching us that the majesty of the maker behind it. We don't worship the stars. We worship the maker of the stars who literally knows every one of them by name and not one of them is missing. We're still exploring them. But to him, he's made them all, put them in place, and not one of them is missing. What a powerful, glorious God we have. And now we get to our final point here, verse 27 to 31. And we need to see how he gives to his own people. See how he gives of himself to his own people. And the challenge here is, don't believe your path is hidden from the Lord. Here's sort of where the Lord gets down to the point of why he's exhorting, why he's comforting, why he's counseling his people in such a way in this last little text here. And the reason is because they're living in those sort of difficult times, right? They're living in the times where they are either on their way to exile, depending which people they might be, or the citizens of Jerusalem. They're either on their way to exile or they're already there. And Isaiah is writing this letter to these people to encourage them as they're world is collapsing, and they're into this new sort of world that's not comfortable, that's not easy, that's difficult to handle, full of disappointment, full of discouragement, and they're questioning, how do we handle this? And, and life's hard. Some of them torn from their families to be slaves in different places. Others just uprooted and living in a new neighborhood and trying to figure how to do it. But still, to different degrees, life has changed all of a sudden, and it's difficult. They're in exile, waiting for the Lord to sort of come back and save them and do what he's promised he would do. And I just can't help but think that we need to remember that we're the same kind of situation, aren't we? We do know as believers who hope in Jesus Christ that he came once to die on the cross to pay for our sins and save us, but he's coming again. And his kingdom is the true kingdom. This earth and all the things that people chase after to build up their own kingdom are not the reality. That's not the real deal. He's coming again. So we're exiles here. We're wrestling as as exiles wandering around in this world sort of thing, knowing this is not our home, just like those people knew it's not their home. But as you wrestle and sort of live in this dark and dirty world, and sometimes it's hard and it's difficult and there's disappointment and there's loss and there's discouragement, there's this questioning that begins to come in our hearts. Right? This questioning where we begin to ask God, what is going on? And I think we need to pay attention here. There's different ways that we can question God, and some are very appropriate, and some the Lord is rebuking here in this text. I think about the Psalms and the way sometimes the Psalms, you read the, the authors of the Psalms questioning the Lord, and they're doing it in such a way as if to say, my soul is downcast, my heart is heavy. Like, I am just sort of broken with the circumstances of my life, but I come to you, God. And there's this acknowledgement that life sort of sucks right now, but I'm not refusing to acknowledge that you are still God in the midst of it. In fact, I'm coming to you because I know you're faithful. I know you're good. I know that you're the one who's ordered all things. You're the one I can trust. So there's this sort of brokenness and yet dependence because you know God hasn't changed. That's one way to come to God, and that's the good way to come. The other way that gets a little dangerous is where we sort of get so frustrated with our circumstances, so frustrated with life right now, that we begin to say, God, do you even see what's going on in my life anymore? Do you see what's going on in my life? This is not fair. Life's not fair. How, if you're a, fit, a God who's just, and you're a God who's all-knowing, how could you let this happen in my life? That is questioning a couple of the characteristics of God, is it not? It's a different kind of question. Now you're saying, God, you're not just. God, you're not all-knowing. That's what the Lord is rebuking here. As we see this text, I want you to hear. The Lord is challenging that and saying, listen, son or daughter of mine, don't question who I am. I know it's difficult. Don't question who I am. What you need to know is that you're sure of who I am in the midst of that. Listen to these words in Isaiah 40, 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. That's what the people are saying, right? God doesn't see. He doesn't know my rights. And the Lord challenges that way of thinking, and he says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Don't you know who I am? He's reminding them. This is who I am. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. I don't know if you missed it or not, but there's four huge ideas about God in that one little verse. Look over it again quickly with me. As the Lord reminds us, just like He reminds those people who are questioning Him as they wrestle, the Lord says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. Our God is an eternal God. Just point number one to note out of that verse. The next thing is, He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He made the whole earth. He's everywhere, He's omnipresent. He is our creator of all things. On top of that, he does not grow faint or weary. He's untiring. We may think God's taking a break. He's on the night shift sleeping while our life is going on. Sort of. not, not the case. Our God is all-powerful. He doesn't take a break. He doesn't rest. That's the next one. He's all-powerful, omnipotent. Another one is his understanding is unsearchable. He's all-knowing. Do you see? God is reminding his people as he knows they're struggling. He knows they're wrestling because life sometimes is difficult to comfort them. He goes, don't you know? Haven't you heard who I am? Trust in that. Cry out and say, like we just sang, Lord, I need you. That's where our hearts should be. And then see how he's saying, I am here, right? Look at the good news. That's who who God is, how powerful he is. But then look at the good news in verse 29. Out of that power, out of that wisdom, out of that sort of eternal power, verse 29, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases, he gives abundant strength. What incredibly good news that this all-powerful, sovereign creator God who holds the universe together by the word of his power says to us as he desires to comfort us this morning, listen, you call on me and I will give you power. I will give you strength. I'll supply you with what you need. This is what he's trying to comfort us with. Remember, don't lose sight of who I am and understand that I will supply what you need. Don't try and do it on your own. Don't try and... I know we are so prideful in our day and age, right? Aren't we? We try. Okay, I believe in God, but I got this. I'm thankful that he's going to die on the cross to save me from my sins, but everyday life, I've got it. No, you don't. Look at verse 30. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall fall exhausted. Right? Even the young man. I'm not a young man anymore. I'm learning that a little bit now. Just getting there. I don't, I don't want to admit it either. But we get tired, We get exhausted. And even the young man in his strength and his pride thinks he can handle this sort of world that's throwing everything at him. And I'm telling you, stop it. Don't even go that way. Don't try and depend on your own strength. No, we ought to understand who our God is, how humble we should be, and that we live saying, Lord, I need you. Singing that song, we just say, Lord, I need you. You are the one who I know is strong, who I know is full of wisdom when I need wisdom, who's full of power when I need power. You are my supply. This is where we find the strength and the comfort and the peace to live. Look at verse 31. It's not the young man who's going to last, but those who wait for the Lord. They shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary, walk and not faint. Just a quick little note of that word renew. They shall renew their strength. I think maybe a better translation of that is they shall exchange their strength. Because sometimes we read that and we think, renew, like I've got some of the strength and then God's going to help me sort of get my strength back up to the level it needs to be. I think the better way you need to understand it is we switch. I know my strength is nothing and I just take all of the strength of God. That's how I'm living. And I'm exchanging my strength for his strength and I'm living in that power. So we exchange our strength and then we live our life waiting for the Lord. I want to just talk a little bit about waiting for the Lord here as we come to the end of our message this morning. Those who wait for the Lord. Sometimes I think we think about this word waiting, and it gives us an excuse to sit on the couch. Just so you know, that's not what this is uh, (laughs) giving you the right to do, okay? Waiting for the Lord here. Let me explain this. Waiting is characterized by a faithful longing for the Lord, knowing that he's coming. It's to hope in the Lord, that He's um, the Lord's going to bring about his promise of salvation. That's what's in view here. The waiting is this, sort of this expectant hoping, this life that's full of expectation. Right? We know and we believe Jesus Christ came and lived and died and rose again and conquered sin and death. And we believe the king is coming back. The waiting is to know that that's what I believe. I'm sure the king is coming back. And because the king is coming back and his kingdom is the real deal, this is not. I'm going to live my life like I believe that. That's what waiting is. I'm going to live my life actively. It's actually an active waiting, if you really understand it. My life is so dependent and knowing that I'm waiting for that return, that the decisions I make now make it obvious to everybody that I'm waiting for that return, not living for here. That's what's in view. I'm so sure of the king coming, that I'm living like it, actively living like it, all the time aware of it, pursuing that, making decisions in my life that everyone around sees and understands that this is what I believe. We need to be hoping for his coming. And so the challenge this morning, the the command this morning is that the people of God would be comforted. And I would just challenge you to be comforted by beholding your God today. Behold your God. This is the best counsel you can receive. I pray that your soul would know that this morning. I cannot do that, but the Holy Spirit and the Word of God sure can this morning. Just speak to your heart, speak to your soul, and remind you, this is what you need to know more than anything else, who I am. And in fact, I'd encourage you, keep pursuing it. Think about what you wrestled with last week, and you look towards the week to come. What have you wrestled with? What are you dealing with? And how are you going to apply it differently? Because you know who our God is, because you've been reminded of how big our God is. If I could just come back to a few points of application, because the Lord sort of laid these on my heart this week. Just for those who are struggling with anger and bitterness, please be reminded of how big our God is. Let that speak to your heart and put things in perspective that your anger and your bitterness would be seen from the right perspective, and you'd be able to deal with it. Those issues that you're concerned with that just irk you so much that they'd be seen in light of the glory and the majesty and the power of God, they'd be put in perspective. And you'd understand that as you don't live in your own strength, but you come from the wisdom and the strength God supplies, you deal with it, you repent of it, you acknowledge it, you, you do what you need to do to deal with it as a Christian would. And to those who are discouraged, there's a lot of people discouraged in the world we're living in right now, just can I counsel you with the same solution. Please just behold your God this week. I'm telling you, if you can see, if the Lord opens your eyes and your ears and your heart this morning to see the beauty of God and the majesty of God this morning through his word, you don't need to be discouraged. It should fill you with joy. Despite the fact that circumstances might be seem discouraging to most, you have a king who is in all his throne and glory and all his power looking down on you this morning saying, you're my son, you're my daughter, I want to comfort you specifically this morning. Be encouraged. And those, last one, those who are discontent. I know it's sort of like discouragement, but I think it's different. Those who are discontent. Always wanting more. This is, again, that world teaching us to build ourselves up, think we're more important than we should. Always wanting more grumpy because life's not what you want it to be. The Lord sort of challenged me this week. On this a little bit, I'll be honest with you, but also challenge me to speak this to you guys today, that that the application for that is the same. We need to hear that. Your discontentment is a demonstration that you don't see God right. You're discontent because you don't see how great and powerful and glorious our God is and all that He supplied in his love towards you in sending his son. What, What do you have to be discontent about if you know our God? You need a heart check on that. just close with this thought maybe that you would pursue God and be able to say this psalm. We see this psalm on our last slide here, Psalm 73, 25 to 26. It says, whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Pursue the Lord so that you can say that psalm honestly. Not recite it and memorize it only, but say it honestly that God, nothing on earth I desire but you. You are so much greater than everything else. Like it seems like I don't even desire anything else compared to you. You are so great and so glorious. I pray that you'd see God this morning, behold him this morning, and desire him because you see him this morning. And it would put everything else in perspective. So the Lord is the only one who can do this. So let's close in prayer and just ask him to do that exact thing for us. Heavenly God and Father, we thank you for your glory and for your might. And we praise you that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. Help us to see it today. Give us eyes to see your majesty. Give us eyes to see how beautiful you are that we would be blown away by you. Sort of push us back with the vision of your glory that we'd be knocked on the seat of our pants, blown away by you and just thankful to see you and know you and hear your words of comfort for us this morning. Lord, demonstrate yourself to us. Show us your glory. Show us who you are and, and overwhelm us and, and help us to have hearts longing to just sing your praises, to longing to give you all the glory and all the praise because we know how great and awesome you are, Lord. Help us to delight in you more than anything else, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.